0: Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam
1: Hansen. Good morning. Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner. I'm in studio here with my partner, Adam Hansen. We are attorneys with Deason, Garner, and Hansen and we do estate planning. But what we like to do on this show is talk about important topics to both our community and our nation. And uh, today we're going to talk about an incredible person who's doing it. Miracles in Africa. His name is Charles Moley. He goes by Moley. And we came across Charles Moley um, in this net oh it's, I don't is it a Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime?
2: Yeah, it's a Prime video.
1: Prime video. So you can find it on Prime Video. It's called Moley. And it's about an amazing person who rises up from poverty and dedicates his life to rescuing rescuing children on the street. So we're going to get into how we watched that and came across it, and then some real takeaways from that story, because I think that there's many of us in the community that have not only the means to help out, maybe not in such a large way as Charles Moley did, but to a great extent. And the combination of us all working together to help out the poor in our community— can lift everyone. We, we talk a lot about um, social justice, or there is a lot of talk about social justice and equity and um, saving the environment. He does all of these things, but he doesn't do any of it through government programs. He does it through hard work, entrepreneurship, and teaching children uh, the value of hard work. So to get back to this story of where, we, where I was introduced to it, um, Adam had sent me a link and said, watch this movie, it's amazing, it's a documentary. Never got around to watching it, so uh, last weekend, we were up in Tucson attending the Arizona Bar Association. Adam and I both serve on different uh, bars and, or different boards for the bar, and so we were participating in the production of sections of the bar and uh, also getting continuing education on the way back we decided to watch this documentary. And so I'm driving in the car, Adam puts it on, and uh, I was incredibly moved about this story. It starts out in 1949 with this six-year-old boy who witnesses his father coming home drunk every night to beat his mother, to abuse his children, failed to provide for his family they're living in a mud hut in kenya they're starving to death they don't have any clothes they're not going to school and so it's a pretty, pretty dreary picture of their life well it gets worse one morning uh... charles wakes up he's six years old his family is gone they've abandoned him apparently um, his mother according to her recollection left his uncle in charge to look after him. But when he woke up, nobody was around. He walked around the village, found his uncle, who was also a drunk, and asked for food. He's starving to death. And uh, his uncle tells him to leave, to get away. So he gets no help from his uncle, and he, he continues to beg around the community, but he's not being very successful. He's starving to death. So he walks nearly 50 miles to the nearest city. And uh, he's, he's savvy enough to live on the streets and to beg and to sustain himself until he's about 17 years old. And finally, he's in this richer neighborhood knocking on doors, asking to do odd jobs and anything he can to provide for himself just to sustain from day to day. And this... Indian woman invites him in, has compassion on him, and gives him some chores. Washing dishes, gardening, pulling weeds, doing chores around the house, and in exchange he can have the leftovers from the meals that they have. And she is married to a CEO, an owner of an agriculture company, and so they're able to continue giving him more and more responsibility in their company and their agriculture business until a year later, he's only 18 years old, they make him a manager over quite a few people. I, I don't know exactly the timeline, but um, Adam, if you remember right, you, you, can, you can chime in here. Between the years of 18 and 20, he becomes a manager over 800 of the workers of this Indian woman's husband's company. And so he's, he's made quite an impression on this family that he's willing to work hard. He's willing to put in the effort that it takes to, to not only pull his own weight, but to be very productive for other people. And he's a manager. He's able to start saving money. And he's able to buy clothes for himself and, and look presentable. And then things really take off from there. Do you, you want to pick up on the next segment of that story?
2: So to me, the biggest issue or the biggest change in his life was, he, in his own words, he said he was a street kid because he had, no, he had no parents, he had no job. So he was living day-to-day, and that caused him to do acts of violence and crime. So he would hold people up at knife point and steal money. He would uh, steal food. He was doing anything he could, scrap, scraping by to, to live until he wandered into that church, and that was the big eye-opener to me, was the, the role that religion plays in an individual's life is life-changing. And that's what he—he he doesn't really go into detail about that, but it wasn't until that moment in his life that he actually felt purpose. Prior to that, he wanted to take his own life. He was so miserable. He, he didn't see a, a need to live, and so it wasn't until he wandered into this church one day that he actually found and felt something greater than himself
1: Yeah, that was an extremely important point that I skipped over, that before he went and he found this Indian woman who was compassionate upon him, he wanted to take his life. He's 17 years old, and another teenager saw him in this desperate situation and invited him to church. And the preacher, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, touched his heart. And then he felt purpose, even before... He was able to have um, consistent meals and and clothes and income. So great. That's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up.
2: So why is that? what, what is it about that act? And is that can you duplicate that um, on an individual level? So if I'm having a hard time in my life, is it as easy as going to church? That's the question I had as I was watching this. Is it, you just go to church and boom, you're saved. You're you're automatically happy. What, what was the life-altering change in him that caused him to go from wanting to take his own life to having purpose in life such that now he was compelled to reach out to a lady that he was working with, and she, he thought she was beautiful. He had the confidence enough, now that he was working and had some skills, to actually approach her and to talk to her. And he mentioned before so that—
1: one of his fellow workers in the fields.
2: He mentioned before that he, he'd never really talked to girls. I mean, that wasn't yeah. really on his radar— but she was so beautiful that he couldn't help himself, and so he <clears throat> went up and he talked to her, and he was motivated to ask her to be, be his wife, which I thought was pretty incredible. They really didn't have a lot yeah. even at that point. He was still working. He's day-to-day. 20 years
1: old at this time.
2: And she was working hard day to day, and they didn't have a lot, but yet they decided to get married. And so another milestone that I picked up in his life was that not only did he somehow find um, a greater calling through coming to know uh, some sort of God, Um, and then that motivated him to find companionship with a wife. And we know that you and I, Sean, know that marriage is hard. Not our marriages, but other marriages, right? But uh, marriage can be hard, and why is that? Why is marriage hard, would you guess, Sean? Marriage
1: is hard because... Some people think of it as a contract. Some people think of it as a business agreement, right? That you you go into, and if you put in your 50%, and they put in their 50%, then the relationship will work out. And it it doesn't work that way. Um, Marriage is supposed to be based on unconditional love, where you give everything to your spouse and everything to your children, and you work together to raise this family. And even if you don't have children, and, and uh, you, you and your spouse, you give everything to one another, then if you give 100%, your focus is making your spouse happy. And if her focus is making you happy, then you'll both lose yourself. And Christ taught this, this eternal principle that if you lose your life, only when you lose your life will you find it. And if you search for your life, you'll lose it. And so when you search to be happy and just to fulfill your own greedy intentions, you're never going to find satisfaction. It's never going to happen. Someone's always going to have something better. They're always going to be a better physique. They're always going to be healthier. They're always going to run faster. They're always going to have better clothes. They're always going to have fancier cars. But if you serve somebody... And, and, and you provide some happiness and some comfort and some joy in their life, then there is no comparison. And that is where true happiness and satisfaction comes. And when you find a partner that's willing to do that in return, and they're more willing to do it when you first extend that, that leap of faith to do it yourself, that's where you gain happiness. And I think that's where um, Charles Moley, and he, he's known by moley in the movies, so we'll call him moley um, that's where he found happiness is, by serving. And he found that when he would serve, others would see value in him, and he would continue to serve and find value by giving value.
2: So when we get back to that marriage element, to me, marriage is difficult because I don't always want to do what my wife wants to do. or What? Oftentimes she will give me a to-do list, and I'm like, I don't want to do that right now but she expects me to jump up and, and do that. I have so, a to-do book. Yeah. So marriage becomes difficult in the sense that you really have to let go of your own your own uh, selfish desires in, in a lot of cases and you have to meet either in the middle or sometimes going beyond that. I've heard I've heard different statistics uh, to the extent that uh, on in a marriage it might be 50-50. Uh, it's never 50-50 to me. It's usually 80-20 depending on when the pendulum swings, you know. Might be 80% me. What or, do you
1: think of my 100-100? analogy.
2: What 100-100?
1: That you give 100% and she gives 100%. There is no 50-50. You don't don't attempt to fulfill your end of the bargain. You do everything possible to give your all to her and then in return, she attempts to do the same, but you've got to go out on that leap of faith first to give everything to her. There is no I'll put in my half and then you you meet me the other way.
2: I like that. I like that uh theoretical proposal. Oftentimes you you get home from work and you just don't have 100% to give.
1: Well, maybe you've started giving it when you woke up that morning.
2: Right. And so your tank is kind of empty by the time you get home. I don't know. I'm just throwing out a scenario here. So in that scenario, I'm saying sometimes you've got the other partner that can step in and you just let them know, hey, I'm not 100% right now. I'm more like a 60. Can you put in another 40 for me? And vice versa. So if you can talk that out and communicate that, then I feel like the marriage works pretty well. I don't think it's ever 50-50. I think it's always lopsided in right. some direction.
1: And and, and, and it's never going to be, well, I did this. I brought in this income, or I did this um, thing for the household, and therefore it equates to you needing to, to contribute this much. It's do what you can. Do everything that you can. And Am I a perfect example of this? My wife will be the first. I don't know if she'd tell you or not because she's pretty, uh, she's, she's pretty charitable when it comes to her opinion of me. But um, the reality is no, I'm not, I'm not the perfect example of it. But I do realize that the more I give, the happier I am. The more I sit back and expect, the more discontent I am.
2: Absolutely. And so what is this? conversation have to do with Molly. In my mind, as I watched that documentary, there were several things that were going on. The first was he found some sort of religion that gave him purpose, and then that motivated him to get married. And in a marriage, he had to come to grips with the fact that it's not just everything that he wants all the time. He has to compromise here and there, and he has to be selfless. That's what marriage is, is you're being selfless with the other partner. And um, not only that, but and it's often the case that The other partner will have insights and and information that maybe you didn't think of. And so it really works as a a great partnership. And I think that brought a lot more ideas into his his understanding. And then ultimately, he saw a need for his community in that in order to get to work, I think he had to travel, was it a couple hours or something?
1: Well, so there was, yes, there was this need that um, people... He was working um, for a construction company, again, this... um, this husband of this Indian woman they don't name her and I haven't found her name so I wish I, c- I could give her credit but um, he owned both an agriculture company and uh, a construction company and so he was put in charge of providing the supplies to build roads well he found that in doing that there was a huge need to travel uh, 40 to 50 miles to a city a lot of these villagers to have work every single day so he saved up his money as an employee, and um, then he purchased a taxi and started giving people rides. Now, it wasn't just a taxi, like a, a little car, at least the way they depicted it in the video. It looks like a, a small little Nissan truck type thing, like your older 70s version Nissan um, with a big extended bed and you know a cover for shade, and probably eight to ten people got into that truck, and he would play good wholesome music and sing on the way to the city each time and people really enjoyed his upbeat personality and so they they looked forward to riding to work with
2: him. Yeah, absolutely. And so as time went on the word got out that, that and he put he spray painted on the side of his his little van thing, his uh trademark that he came up with. I can't remember what it was, ways molly Mollyways, yeah. And so um people started paying him. I think it was $2.50 or something one way or a round trip. And uh, then he thought, well, I need more buses because this isn't getting the job done. And so he slowly acquires more and more of these little trucks and to the extent that he didn't need to drive anymore. He had other people driving those, and soon he became a millionaire just doing that transportation service and other businesses because once he got into that that opportunity, other opportunities presented themselves where he saw needs of services that the community needed and he would offer that service for uh, a reasonable price people were willing to pay it and he ran it well
1: and he increased it to buses and larger vehicles so we'll come back to this we've got to take a break
0: this is life death and the law coming up more thought-provoking conversations on life death and the law right after this
3: Hey you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in that's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved ones future you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason Garner and Hansen I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free no pressure seminar and learn all of your options the firm of Deason Garner and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years and this is the only area of law that they practice Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.
0: You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted human's best six years in a row.
1: Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking today about Charles Moley and him giving his all to his family and to his community. And in a lot of ways, his family didn't like or appreciate the way that he chose to serve God and to serve his family and his family greater community but that's sometimes how it happens he did it with a hundred percent when i look at his story and i see him um there's sometimes that you get touched deep in the heart that there's some there's some truth to this and i i am a big believer in religion um, and Christianity specifically, and in the spirit, and I believe that the spirit can touch your heart when truth is explained, and you're 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 learning it. And I see what he, this man does, and there's no question in my mind that he was called of God to fulfill a role that his community desperately needed. And he came from nothing; he came from the poorest of the poor but he continued to work and to give and to show this charitable intent. And he did so, um, and he was able to build his money and his wealth on principles of hard work and capitalism. He was able to own the means of production, which is, in this case, taxis. So he was able to purchase taxis. He increased that to buses, opened up tire shops, opened up repair shops, Opened up a welding factory. He created a real estate business. So he is starting to become a mogul and um, he's quickly becoming a very, very wealthy man. And finally, an oil and gas company comes to him and asks him to be their representative to supply all of Western Kenya for oil and
2: gas supplies. So As you're talking, the thing that pops into my mind is he's living the American dream. This is what we call the American dream, but he doesn't live in America, he lives in Kenya. So this idea of being able to go out and make your own is really what our country is founded on, is what I would argue. The problem is I think a lot in our our current system don't take that opportunity. And they have a victim-type mentality that it's the government, or I have to, I have to work for somebody else. I think the the real thing here that Moli sees as his success is his own entrepreneurialism, where he goes out and he makes his own way. He doesn't rely on somebody else. I'm sure he had some help along the way, like he had that young kid that introduced him to a church. He had his wife that constantly was by his side and giving him counsel, um, but most of it was done because. He was living a good life, and he saw needs in the community, and he addressed those needs for a reasonable price, and people were willing to pay that, and that's what we call capitalism. And so he made his own way. He wasn't relying on a government system. He wasn't relying on somebody else to come in and give it to him. He just did it himself and had a great attitude the whole time um, once he had found this religion that he he was uh, practicing. So in our own lives, it was a great lesson to me to— keep my eye on the prize, if you will, to continue to have that American spirit. Are there needs in our community that we see that we're just a little scared to go out of our way to help address? When it comes to entrepreneurialism, the most nerve-wracking thing is the sacrifice that it takes to get that business going. Sean, you and I have been there for several different businesses that we've done, and it always takes that leap of faith, and you're really one to help me push me off the diving board because sometimes I'm very analytical and if it doesn't make sense in my mind sometimes, then I'm, I, I'm very slow to pull the trigger. You're very good at saying, no, jump. We got to jump. We got to go. You know? You're like that friend when you're on the cliff. And oftentimes we fail,
1: but it only takes one good idea out of 10 or 20 to make up for all the failures and the learning experiences that we gained along the way.
2: There's another um, book that we used a few years back in our firm that we implemented for a little while there, and it worked really well. It's called The 12-Week Year, and the premise of that is that you can condense. The, the idea is that no idea is really a bad idea, so bring all the ideas to the table and let's try them out. You run them uh, in, in short periods of time of 12 weeks. If it doesn't work in 12 weeks, then you ditch it, and you're moving. You're constantly moving and and uh, integrating and changing your systems For the better. And we've tried that in the past and it worked really well. Wouldn't you say, Sean?
1: Yeah. So instead of allowing an idea just to sit there and, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say fester. What's a better word for that is to uh, just kind of percolate. Yes. On the back burner and not really develop. We move forward with it and we try to learn and see if it takes any traction. We put a little money, we put a little effort into it and we see if it's going to develop. Even if it doesn't return monetarily back initially, we can see whether or not it has merit or not we need to kill it and go on to the next idea and we've done that several times, and so um, for our listeners out there, we are lawyers full time. What we do is we help people put together their affairs, arrange what's going on financially in their lives, arrange what's going on. Um, with their family members and with their relationships, and so when life events take a turn for the worse, they become sick or they pass away, then there is somebody there that can manage their affairs and make sure that their legacy lives on. That's what we do full time. But as spin offs of that, we also um, are financial advisors, and we have partnered with financial companies that can help people grow their wealth, and plan for retirement. We are real estate agents, and we have a brokerage in the firm that we can help people buy homes or sell homes, liquidate um, inheritance that they've received and distributed among their family. Um, So, And we've also participated in this newest idea, which is this farm, which we call our permaculture farm, where we have goats and chickens and sheep. And we're trying to help regenerate the land and teach our children hard work at the same time. So all of these things we are working on, while we each have six children, raising them in the community and trying to participate in in uh, extracurricular civic events. And uh, we're all we're, we're both members of boards of different uh, community organizations. So all of this to say that um, there is no right or wrong about going forward with trying something new. The only wrong is to not try it at all. And so Charles Moley, he did this. He tried a lot of things. Now, of course, we know of his success, his successes. We don't know of his failures, and I'm sure he had many along the way. But he became extremely successful. One of the the most recognized and uh, prominent people in his community where he was throwing dinner parties and, and rubbing shoulders with very influential members in Kenya. And uh, one day, he goes on a business trip. He's about 40 years old. He has eight children at this point. And when he stops and parks his car, some street kids, which he can really look at and uh, identify with, they ask him for money, and he says no. And they say, well, let's put it a different way. We'll give you money to protect your car. And he says, no, I'm not going to pay this ransom, to basically, to pe- protect my car. And so he's, he's now stuck in this business mindset. So along the way, he started to lose focus a little bit. This is according to him. And uh, so he goes and he does his business meeting, he comes back out, no car. So the car is gone. And uh, he rides a bus back home, and it's likely one of his buses that uh, he acqu- he he's got this busing um, business, this large business going on. So he rides public transportation back home, but he's sick to his stomach the whole ride home. He tries to work the next day, and he's he's physically sick and mentally tormented. And so he tells his secretary he's going to go home, but he doesn't. He takes this long ride out into the country with no specific destination in mind and stops his car and just breaks down in this just spiritual torment for hours until he finally comes to this resolution. that, And he's praying as, as, as he's suffering through this, What does God want from him? He's gotten everything that he could have ever asked for. He should be happy, yet he didn't give these kids just a little bit of money as he would have expected when he was in that position. And um, he, he, he thought to himself, what have I become? I've become totally insensitive to their situation. And so as he's being tormented, he finally relents and he says, God... What is it that you want? I'll do whatever you want. And it's at that point that things change for him. He has an epiphany, a flash of light, a flood of inspiration. And he receives a calling from God to help those that are less fortunate in a big way. So he goes back home and he tells his wife that he will never work for money again. He is going to sell everything that they have and start contributing it to the poor. He's going to work on educating the street kids, helping them get the, the, the assistance that they need, both the mental help and the education they need to become self-sufficient. Most of all, to alleviate their suffering right now, immediately. Give them food, give them clothes, but more so, give them faith that they can be productive. They can contribute and be self-sustaining first and then contribute back to the community. And we don't know. In, in the movie, it doesn't say what his wife's reaction to this was. It was solemn. But um, at dinner, he tells his eight children, after they come home from school and he asks how their day went, he tells them his plan. And uh, they sit there in shock. They're just, they, they, they think they're living in some twilight zone. They don't understand because they like having this nice house and nice cars and,
2: and servants. They had servants yeah, as well.
1: Perfectly clean house and well cooked food. So they're just, they, they feel a little betrayed. And um, soon after that, he goes out at night and he goes to the slums. And he looks for the orphans that are all off on their own, that don't seem to have any support, and uh, he offers them bread, and then he offers to bring them home and give them shelter and food. Now, in our society today, if we were to do this, there would be some probably serious consequences from law enforcement. I mean, you can't just take a child and bring them into your home um, without going through. The appropriate uh, court procedures, but um, he goes and does this, and he doesn't do it without some type of um, social backlash. His friends see that he's stopped working, that he's stopped running his businesses, and he's starting to sell off all of his resources and bringing home street kids and so, There are even rumors. Did you switch from the oil and gas business, the tire business, the transportation business, to selling street kids? Is that what you're doing? And, And that was something that he was able to shoulder all of those misconceptions about him. And his former friends and his wife's friends abandoned him. They thought he was crazy to do this.
2: Not only that, but his church, they kicked him out as well. Um, they didn't want these street kids coming into their church, so they were just alone and they had to go it alone. Over yeah. time, they they uh, we've got to go to a break. We'll talk about this in just a minute. This is Life, Death, and Law.
0: Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law. Right after this.
3: Hey, you. My Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.
0: You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row.
2: Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm with uh, Sean Garner, my partner in crime here. We've got Cody running the boards, and we've got Anna Karen as well, lending her voice to our conversation. We've been talking a lot about this man named Charles Moley. This was a, a Amazon Prime documentary that was suggested to me by a group of friends mainly because of the environmental things that it has near the end and we'll talk about that in a minute here but um leading up to that Charles Moley was a street kid he was an orphan in in the on the streets of in Kenya and uh, abandoned since he was a little little toddler and so he grew up on the streets and he comes to know about religion, he he's introduced to a church and he comes to to know about God and Jesus Christ, and so he changes his life. He gets married. He he starts his own businesses and does very very well. becomes a millionaire there in Kenya, and lives in a mansion and uh, has. I, Sean, you said eight kids. I thought it was six, but six eight kids. It was a lot eight. of kids. It was eight. And I, yeah,
1: uh, it's amazing. I went back and watched the video again after we came home from our trip and uh, watched it with my family.
2: And so, at one point, when he's really successful, he he has this epiphany and he has this moment where he feels extreme guilt for some of the things that he's done, and and um, he feels like he has been talked to by God to help the needy and the poor. So he determines to sell all of his stuff, all of his businesses, not work anymore. He's never he's never going to work for money again. And so he comes home and he presents this to his family, his kids at the dinner table, and his wife and his. It seemed to be the first that that she was hearing of it because the kids say the look on her face was one of very shock and awe, and it was obvious that they hadn't talked about what was going on beforehand. And so the kids were living a great life at that point. I mean, there's not very many millionaires probably in, in the whole country of Kenya, and they had their own servants. They had this mansion that they had built, and now that was all going to drastically change. And so the rest of this documentary talks about what that change looked like. Molly would go to the streets at night to these very, very bad neighborhoods. If he were to run into somebody in those neighborhoods, it's most likely they would kill him. That's just what happens at 2 o'clock in the morning on the streets in Kenya. And
1: well, and, and oftentimes it's because they're...
2: Hopped up on drugs or, yeah, they, or something like that.
1: Absolutely, they're just sniffing glue. They're, they they admittedly were sniffing gasoline. They're taking heroin. They're smoking marijuana. All of these things are are making it so... They're not themselves. And uh, you walk into a situation like that, and it's extremely dangerous. He makes one wrong move, and he's going to get stabbed.
2: So one by one, he would go to the streets at night. He would identify these orphans that were just destitute, little, little, little babies that were just in the street um, under these little you know, tent-type shelter things just laying on the dirt there. Um, in, in rags. And so he would identify one by one and start bringing them home. And soon their house filled up. And it got to the extent where in order to manage these kids that were coming into the house, he actually had to ship a few of his kids off to boarding school because he couldn't dedicate enough attention to all of the kids. And so that that was a rift for these kids that felt like, who are these these gross kids coming into our house using our stuff and mistreating everything they don't have any respect they don't have any they're manners
1: breaking windows breaking the toilets you know tearing up the the curtains and because you know they've been living on the streets and they're fighting with his own biological children
2: and so these kids they have to his kids they decide well we've got to send them off to boarding school while we can get a bead on the situation here and and one by one these kids are coming into the house and it becomes very evident quickly that they need more space, and Moli has some space. He has some, I don't know if it was inheritance or how he acquired this land, but he has a big piece of land. It, he bought it
1: for retirement. That's right. He wanted to go there and build a, a retirement place for him and his wife.
2: That's right. That's where it came from, and and it's out in the Serengeti. It's like in the middle of the desert of Kenya. And there's nothing there. There's no water. There's no electricity. There's nothing And so it's determined that, okay, we're going to go out there. We have this huge parcel of land, and we're going to build. We're going to build this orphanage. We're going to build a school, that kind of stuff. So they start bussing everybody out there. And by this point, there are hundreds. Yeah, they're not
1: just taking on a dozen kids. They've got about 200 kids at this point, and they're bussing them out there to the middle of nowhere. This is way out there. And, I mean, you say no electricity. Okay. There's no water. It's a four-hour trip to get jugs of water to drink. Daily. Yeah, every single day. They gotta go, he's got to make this four-hour trip to get water. And they drill several times, hundreds of feet deep, to access water, and there's nothing. But that doesn't deter him because he's got this unshakable faith and conviction that he has been called of God to help these kids. He's busting at the seams at his home in the city— And more and more kids keep coming, and he says he's not going to refuse to keep bringing them home. As they show the need, he's going to keep bringing them in. So they got to have a bigger place, and so he receives this inspiration to go out to this land that they've set aside for retirement.
2: And so brick by brick, they start building the school, they start building shelters, and the orphans are not happy. I mean, they came from this in the city, life in a mansion, and now they're out in the Serengeti in the middle of the desert, and it's just a very hard life. And so some of them start leaving. They, they're, they're fed up. They don't see the vision, and so they start leaving back to the city. And one by one, Molly would go and find them and bring them back, and they're just so touched because they feel like they're nothing. And so
1: during the day, he's working to help the ones that are around learn how to build, and how to contribute to their now family society. And he calls every one of them children, and they all call him dad and his wife Esther mom. And uh, and at night, he goes back and he finds them, and they can't believe that he's gone back and found them, number one, that he's able to find them, number two, that he's willing to find them.
2: And brick by brick, they build this place and until the culminating thing... What was interesting to me was they start building not only these buildings for school and for shelter and things like that, but they start constructing this bridge. There's a dried out wash on a piece of the property and and so they start building this bridge and which is really interesting because there's no water there they have to they have to go four hours to find water number one, number two, there's no flowing water i mean it's a complete desert it's like the dunes here to our west here in Yuma. And there is no water to be found, yet they start building this bridge, and Moli says, I, I know there will be water here someday. So we're going to build in, in anticipation. And, ha- and how does he know it? Well, he's seen the vision, and he's, I imagine God has told him that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that, that's the amazing thing about it to me, is it kind of, you, you have to watch it very closely, but he said, I've seen this valley Flourishing with trees, flowing water, and vegetables and fruit growing. And his children and his wife are, are looking at him like, This is desert. What are you talking about? We can't even get water to drink.
2: Yeah, so ultimately he has a dream. You know, they've tried multiple commercial sources of coming in, and bringing in these well drillers. And three or not just once, it's three or four times they're looking for water. They've drilled, spent a lot of money trying to find water and drilling hundreds of feet down, and there's no water there until it comes to the point where he has this dream. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he wakes up his wife, and he says, I've I've been shown water. There's water. And she thinks he's crazy, obviously. And so they walk out in the the blackness of the night, and he walks and he walks and he walks. He says, it's right here. This is where it was in my dream. And so the next morning, they get shovels. The kids start going to work digging and digging and digging and the kids are like this guy is nuts shovels after these
1: wells professional well drillers have come up dry Multiple shovels. times, yeah and and i've i've had a well drilled on my property and i see the equipment that goes into it and i can't imagine trying to do the same thing replicate the same results with a shovel but that's what they're down to
2: So these kids get into the hole. They start shoveling three or four kids at a time, and they're just digging, digging day and night. And I think they dig for maybe two days, something like that, till the depth of that hole was probably about two two people.
1: Yeah, it seems like that. They don't say specifically, but it looks about that deep, maybe 12 feet.
2: Yeah, and so I think it was the second day or third day when uh, Moli's own kid was in there. Two of his kids were in there the other ones are kind of giving up everybody's given up you know there's no water here and um, they get to a point where it's just solid almost rock yeah it's
1: rock it's they it's like lava rock
2: yeah and they're hitting that and they're like we can't break through this and uh so they're all about to give up and molly says there is water here and so his two kids get back in the hole and one of the kids picks up a shovel and or maybe it was a it's a pickax. pickaxe
1: They call it something different, some other probably a different name for a pickaxe.
2: Swings that thing, hits the rock, and instantly, just like a geyser of water, just explodes. And there's just water shooting up, and everybody's like, "Oh my gosh!" And kills the kid. Yeah, he's no, he did it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Then the movie's over. No. (laughs) I'm
1: over here getting all inspired, and then it's like, "Oh, the kids dead." (laughs) No, no, they all celebrate, and everybody, hundreds of kids, gather around. And uh, there's this water now. And they set up this water purification system, and it fills up this gigantic tank. And not only is he able to provide water for his community and, and um, of children, now they can focus on their studies in the school that he's, he's providing for them. But um, he's able to provide water to the community and water to, to start this agricultural process. And um, so he starts planting and initially, they, they start planting with an ox and that's, that's pulling a plow. I mean, this is, we're going back 150 years in technology, but this is, he has run out of money. We forgot to mention this. He has sold everything that he had besides this retirement property, and they have no money. They're now relying on donations, which are sporadic, coming in, and there's miracles that are shown in the movie of that too but the, he has no more resources he's no longer a millionaire relying on his own resources to continue doing this that's why they rely on the shovels and that's why they are out there in the middle of the desert because he's he's destitute and so it's solely in his faith of this vision that he received that this is going to happen and so this water is provided, and they plant these fields using an ox. It's, it's pretty mind-boggling to think of an ox to, to till the ground, to start growing crops. And um, it, it becomes very successful. He gets tractors. They they plant 500 hectare, hectares of property, which I believe a hectare is 2.5 acres. So that's about... Um, I don't know, 1,500 acres. So this man is an absolute icon to me and uh, somebody that models what can be done, not only in America. It's the American dream because in America, we have embraced, we are one of the first countries to embrace capitalism as a form of running commerce. And he implemented this concept. That's why it's the American dream, but he implemented it in Kenya, so it's a Kenyan dream too and uh, showed that, if you don't adopt this victim mentality, if you put forth hard work with faith, then you can not only sustain yourself, but contribute back to your community and your country.
2: Absolutely, and, and all without government intervention, and that's what makes it that, that American dream. Once you get the government intervention out, you're free to make choices and do the things that need to be done out of, the own, out of your own charity, out of your own uh, good heart and good intentions. We've got to go. This is Life, Death, and the Law. We'll talk to you next week.
0: If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason Garner and Hansen at 928-783-4575 or visit Yumaestateplanning.com.